Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Jordan Lasker. Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so before we get into it, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? All right. So I'm a PhD student at Texas Tech. I work as a bioinformatician at a genomics company. My research is principally methodological. It has a lot to do with the biological sciences. I do a lot of uh, psychological work on the side, and I am generally more on the statistical side of wherever I'm at. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And what you wrote for us is a uh, for CSPI. You have a report called "About Those uh, Baby Brainwaves," and I really, you know, I enjoyed this. I think this is something that it's not going to be the whole the full length report is not going to be for everybody. Uh, you're going to have to have a little bit of an interest in sort of statistics and sort of, um, you know, formal logic and sort of, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, it's an exercise. That's the way I look at the, the paper. It's like, it's not that the, uh, uh, it's not that the baby brain moves thing is that, is that important because the whole point is it's not that important and it's not that atypical. I mean, for both the study and the uh, reaction to it. Um, but can you just, I guess start by telling us what was the baby brainwave study and you know, what made you want to look into it. So the baby brainwave study was a uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences publication by a group led by a Troller Renfrey. Um, Troller Renfrey et al. had this amazing opportunity in, with this study called the First Years Study, where they gave randomized groups of families who were quite poor. The average income was around $20,000 for these families. They gave one group $333 a month, and they gave the other group a little stipend of $20 a month as the, you know, the control of basically no money. So they ended up increasing one group's income by about 20%, and they wanted to test the effects of this on a variety of developmental outcomes for children to see if giving parents cash would improve the cognitive, the psychological, the, you know, the how well kids act and everything like that. Yeah, this is the liberal. I mean, this is the liberal dream. It's just redistributing wealth, and then not only do you redistribute wealth, but you change people's lives. Good things happen, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I guess and that's so, the idea. And and what do they what do they claim to find? So they claim to find effects on why electroencephalogram patterns. These are EEGs. You might have heard. You might have been hooked up to one of them as a kid or something. But these are their brain waves, and brain waves have been correlated with all sorts of outcomes from depression to intelligence to, you know, everything in that gamut. It's a massive range of psychological outcomes. They've related them to other brain parameters, like how big your brain is, how small your brain is, whatever, um, how well you sleep, how well you remember things, how well you do in certain tasks, uh, how well you respond, like cooling down after activity. What is, what is the wave, by the way? It's like an electrical current. Is that, is that what they're measuring? Is it That's right. Well, what, what a little, little electrical current in the brain. Your whole body is full of, just constantly full of electricity. I think it's like a thousand joules a day or something of that. And nature. so what, what, when, someone, when someone has a, a higher, is on a sort of a, uh, what is it? The, the wavelengths, uh, what, is, what is supposed to be better? Are they supposed to be like shorter wavelengths or longer wavelengths? So it depends. Um, you have a f- range of different frequencies. In the high frequency bands, which are what Troller and Free at all mostly wanted to investigate, it's they presume that uh, higher amplitudes, like much bigger brain waves, are associated with better performance. They're associated with all sorts of good outcomes. They're associated with socioeconomic status, being richer. They're associated with you know getting adopted into a good family versus getting left in a like a third world orphanage. They're um, they're just Bigger is better in the higher frequency bands, and lower is better in the low frequency bands because those at the high amplitudes, those are considered to be related to all sorts of bad things. Yeah. So, sorry. What? Is, so the frequency bands. I mean, I, I got the numbers, but what, what does that? What does that like actually mean physically? If you could just sort of explain explain this. It's just like uh, like a radio. It's like a different frequency. It's, it's is it like it, that? Yeah. It's, it's activity like. Say you've ever uh, searched a radio, you know, like the old dial radios, whatever you're looking on the FM or the AM and you get like a kind of crappy signal midway through a turn or something. Um, You're like, you know, you partially between a frequency or like you have bad reception in some area. If you have very high amplitude, you're going to be getting a lot of activity and you're going to be probably getting a pretty clear signal of something going on in this range. Um, When they have low activity, the low power, um, as they call it, then you're not really doing much here. It's kind of inactive. Uh-huh. And the and so the brain is just it's it's more active at, or less active at a different frequency. So 
Uh, right. So if you're, like you're picturing the waves are going like this, so like oh, just as the pace of the electrical currents is, is that is that what mm-hmm. it is? Like how, what's okay. well, that's the frequency bands, but the uh, size of like the the uh, the amplitude of the waves is what they were looking at. That's the power. Um, that's the parameter that they believe is related to all sorts of like good or bad outcomes. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So this is, I mean, just one of the little bit of the physical background. None of this is necessary to really understanding the paper. Uh, and so, but what did they? What and so what did they actually find? They found, in their Supposedly. own terms, what they found Supposedly. is yeah. that the group that received the three hundred thirty-three dollar a month stipend versus the twenty dollar a month stipend, that group had greater brainwave activity in bands that they believe were associated with good outcomes and less brainwave activity in bands associated with negative outcomes compared to the uh, control group. Okay. Now, so what they actually found was not really any significant differences. They didn't find that there were any differences between the gr- control and the uh, intervention groups. Yeah. And so, the, and so like, yeah. So why did they, why did they say that they found something? What was the, what was the argument? <laughs> so it, it's a very speculative argument. They know that the effects are not significant. They claim that the effects are basically edging in the right direction. So if like running faster is a better outcome, then they're saying that all their kids are running a little faster. It's not significantly faster, but it's a little faster. In this is like their case, like their, yeah, this is that? like looking at their hamstring muscles, right? It's they're not yeah. even measuring the running faster. They're looking at oh. You know, oh, they yeah. have a body that looks like somebody who might run run faster, right. right? Yeah, exactly. So these brainwave things are not the direct measure of the thing they want to improve. It doesn't matter at all if we improve brainwave activity unless it improves those cartilates that are good or bad. So if it doesn't actually impact like rates of depression or rates or uh, intelligence levels or anything like that, then there's just no point to it. But what they're doing is they're arguing, well, we have this cartilate of all sorts of good things and it's improved potentially. Yeah. <laughs> it's looking like it might be improved a little, but it's not. We can't. We can't say that it is. Um, and we say this is good, so it's good. Yeah, and it's really it's sort of absurd when you put it like that. But I guess I mean, like I, I don't know. I think people, if you had like a test, I think people consider the physical stuff more real. So I, you know, oh, yeah. this I, I think about why this got so much attention, and like I think if it was just like an IQ test and the babies yeah. with the uh, uh, with the money did a little better. I don't think it would have gotten as much attention, even though the IQ test would have been more relevant to what's happening mm-hmm. in the world uh, because oh, you yeah. care about you know cognitive ability. Uh, but it just it sounds it's brainwaves. You know, <laughs> it sounds like something physical. It's like you got taller or you got you know skinnier or fatter. It's something physical in the world. Uh, <laughs> we can we can see, um, and I think you know they assume oh the brainwaves are you know better. You know, if we know brain, better brain waves, you know, that's something real. And I guess it's seen as permanent and lasting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you, so I guess the problem here is people don't understand statistics. They don't understand, like, you know, just, you know, p hacking, you can get this thing on, on accident, even if there's no difference. Um, but then there's also the assumption that the brain waves matter. And, you know, I think if they, if this was a real finding, I mean, I think the brain waves would have to matter because, like, imagine something that improves your brain waves. And then does it have any, like, that would be weird if they gave you money, your brain physically changes in a noticeable way, a way that's, you know, clear. It would make sense if there was something upstream of the brainwaves that changed that led to the change. And we're just seeing them as like a proxy for, you know, something that'll affect the outcomes downstream. But we're really just arguing over the chain of causality here. If we are not affecting, uh, you know, something that will produce the brainwave activity changes, then produce the downstream behavioral cognitive changes, then we're not doing much. We can yeah. totally like, uh, we can actually mess with scores all we want. Um, like if you give a kid an IQ test, and then you give another IQ test and you give them all the answers, they'll do much better. It's similar in, in here, except we can't tell if we've just been giving them the answers or if we've been affecting something really downstream that matters. When, when you talk about like giving somebody all the IQ test answers, that's a very obvious case of we didn't really help you. If you give a kid taller shoes, you're not making them taller. If you're just, you know, giving them a tiny boost, that might matter in some scenario, but it doesn't matter in the way that we feel it matters. Like everybody really wants improvement to happen. If they say that your brain has gotten better, they want to see like transmission speeds improve in the brain. They want to see a bigger brain. They want to see, you know, a brain with less pockmarks on it, less uh, damage to it. They want to see a brain that's healthier in every way. 
And that presumably is going to drive the effect. But if they're, if what we're seeing, our measure of improvement is not related to improve like actual improvements, then it doesn't matter to us. But. Yeah. Yeah. But how would, how would the money, how would the money thing, you know, like, it's like, oh, okay, you can see the mechanism there where you give them the shoe that makes them taller, um, yep. or you give them all the answers for the IQ test. But you know, the brain thing is like, it's like, okay, how does money go to brain? Now you could imagine something strange, like, you know, you just buy more food and yeah. like you eat more calories and your brain waves, like, you know, I don't know, they're digesting food, I guess they're, you know, they're, 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 you know, the, the, the physiological something. And so it doesn't matter for like intelligence or behavior. Uh, it or might, anything. I mean, it could matter developmentally, like, uh, it kids who are deprived of iodine are certainly going to end up a little worse. Yeah. But also, so, the- so, yeah. So anyway, but this thing becomes huge. I mean, this thing, because, because I, I uh, got a New York times news alert. Do you get the, do you get the New yeah. York times uh, on your I phone? A little push notification. Yeah, it's very it's a very rare they do this for like a scientific study. I mean, it's it's like a big thing, like a war starts or you know, like some kind of you know economic data or something huge. So, so this was very odd. I mean, they picked out of all the studies in the world, they picked this one because they must have thought whoever's making these decisions uh, must have thought that this was a really big deal. This wasn't just your one of the mill uh, science study, and you know, and I rem- I read the article and it was so overly politicized. It's like. The, you know, the agenda was so transparent because it's like now there's a debate going on in Congress about extending the child tax credit. And for non-Americans, that means uh, just giving money to parents, um, to mostly poor parents, which they did a lot of during the COVID thing, which is that they don't do a lot. They don't do usually in the United States, but they did it during the COVID. The federal government was just giving people checks uh, for having kids. Um, and they're like, oh, you know, this politician, Joe Manchin. You know the Democrat who always doesn't want to vote for democratic things, and you know people try to pressure him, and it was so overtly uh, political. Did you, is, is that how? How did is that how you got interested in this? Did you see just sort of like the obvious politicization of this and wanted to take a closer look? The, what, I, what actually got me into it was that I saw friends posting. I read the news alert and I thought this is just another weak study. I looked at it for a minute, looked through all the tables, I saw the p values. I was like, none of these are significant. I guess this will blow over, and then. About an hour after that, I saw a friend posting it saying, wow, they've, you know, they've impacted kids' brains. And then some other people who are a bit more openly and often political started posting it saying, big effects, extend the child tax credit, do all sorts of things. It was just very obvious that uh, this was getting overinterpreted. And some people immediately after seeing that the p-values were like nothing, uh, nothing to you know wag a stick at, and that the outcomes were not perhaps as meaningful as we wish did say like, guys, this is a little overhyped. Some uh, organizations like Niskanen and the UBI center, they jumped on this and they wrote like positive stories about how, you know, a UBI would be great for kids or, you know, redistributing more to be great for kids in some fashion. And this was their piece of evidence. And it took them a few days to retract their statements say that you know the evidence is way too weak to say anything about this this can't be a reason for what we want yet yeah and this but this thing fell apart you know like you said they retracted their statements it fell apart pretty pretty uh quickly were you, were you surprised by that i was a bit by, surprised. Like, by, by, by like people noticed i know you knew it was nonsense but did you know oh, yeah. were you surprised that the, like there were people backtracked oh oh the backtracking was really nice to see and it i like seeing a little bit of integrity there it's very good uh, it makes me a bit more confident in what those people might say going forward, that they might reevaluate some of the things they do. Um, I don't expect them to reevaluate everything, of course, but at least when it's very obvious that it's like outside of their wheelhouse and they've made a mistake in endorsing it, they can go back on whatever they've said. And I think that's great. Um, more problematic is that a lot of people who are just very much uh, like wannabe pundits that have massive audiences like, you know, you know, you got like 40,000 followers on Twitter or, you know, a retweet thread with like 70,000 likes or something like this. And those people don't seem to have gone back on what they said, nor have the authors of the study, which is they misportrayed it as well. Um, they even portrayed it as relevant to the child tax credits on their website uh, press release for the study, which is a low integrity thing because they knew from the outset the problems with it. They made the study. They couldn't have not known, but they decided to go ahead with uh, portraying it as an explicitly political thing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. These people, uh, like a lot of these people who are into UBI, um, like the, uh, you know, Nick, uh, Nick Hassan Center and like these sort of uh, neoliberal types. And, uh, mm. you know, a lot of them are sort of, I wouldn't say they're, you know, 
rationalists, but they're sort of rationalist adjacent. Yeah. And so like, you know, they know like enough about like, there's a thing called the replication crisis and they, <laughs> you know, some of them are smart enough to know what P hacking is. And that's not true for like all political, like, you know, mainstream conservatives or mainstream mm-hmm. liberals, like, you know, they don't, yeah, they don't even yeah. think about that. And so like the UBI thing is like, promoted it has an interest with all these people who are like you know more scientifically more rationally minded and i think that that's probably why you know they showed integrity and they, they went back now they had quotations from like a, a i think a congresswoman in the in the new york times article and you know so I don't think yeah and I, I doubt she ever you know i haven't looked it up but i doubt she okay. ever like went back on it right politicians don't do that um mm. the damage that you know the damage has been uh done and so, yeah, we saw, we should give credit, like, you know, like Stuart, Stuart Ritchie, uh, Scott Alexander, a- Andrew uh, Gellman, uh, they looked at this um, and, you know, they, they made a lot of the uh, criticisms that you, you know, expanded on. And uh, the, you know, the author, she, she, she didn't back down, right? She went to Vox. Can you explain like what she, what she said at Vox? This is the lead author. She, again, yeah. Uh, no, it's not the lead author. It's a senior author, Kimberly Noble. Uh-huh, She's... Okay somewhat notorious for a lot of her work, which is in the same sort of vein. Uh, what she'll do in a lot of her papers is she'll correlate social status measured by like education. Hey, wait, 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 where's, what's her job? She's a neuroscientist, neuroscience of poverty. I forget what university she's at, but she's, I think she's rather prestigious. She's, okay. some, she's very well known. What's her name? Kim Noble? Kimberly Noble. Mm-hmm. N-O-B-L-E. Oh, she's got TED Talks. Okay, let's 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 see who this yes. woman is. <laughs> the woman with one hundred per Kim Noble. The... She's at Columbia. Okay, Columbia. Okay, so very impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very impressive pedigree, and she's sort of notorious for doing this. How is she notorious? She's notorious for these studies that are either very weak or entirely non-causal. And what they do is they relate socioeconomic status with a variety of outcomes we consider positive, like you know, a million different measures of brain health. And then what she'll do is she'll say like socioeconomic status drives these differences. There's no real attention paid to the confounding there. Um, so what I mean by the confounding there. <laughs> so you're so, so you get richer and your brain becomes more beautiful and yeah, she doesn't think gives the brain... money, lots of white matter. Yeah. Okay. I mean, really? And then, and then, but she never considers that the good brains might've, might've made you, rich in the first place if she does she doesn't do it enough in her papers and it's not explicit enough it's not in the abstracts enough it's not you know wait hey hold up a minute we're gonna yeah it's, wait it's buried, to have some positive yeah, evidence exactly and i think it's the way these things work is they're often buried they're buried in there sometimes you know they'll say oh i did say yeah. you know because academics produce so many words so like you end up oh, like yeah. producing words that can you know <laughs> say anything. but then they go to the yeah. media and you know when they go to the new york times or something uh no you, you'll you'll see these qualifications and these other possibilities uh, yeah generally in the studies you'll see like a little more qualification when they go to the media when they go to the media it's like Wait, but what do we here? Do? What do we I have, have you know the secret to brain differences between the rich and the poor. We can just give people money and they'll fix everything. Are, in a lot of cases, are they are they just are they assuming what's a good brain or what's a bad brain based on whether rich people have it or poor people have it? Because that happens not, in some it, cases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like um, oh, these are the difference. It must be the rich, you know, the rich brains must be the good ones. Uh, that's actually the just, case for the baby brainwave study. So what they did yeah. for that is they stu- the validity evidence, meaning the evidence for uh, relating, you know, brainwave activity at baseline and uh, good outcomes comes from these mostly correlational studies with no element of randomization or anything, excepting one example. Um, but in almost all of them, it's purely correlational stuff. It's just, hey, these rich kids have brainwaves that are this way, and then the poor kids have them this way, and this is somewhat consistent of these papers we've cited but not all the papers in the literature yeah um, yeah and sometimes and, the papers she cites are contradicting which so like sometimes they'll say the rich yes. brains are like this and the poor brains like this sometimes they're they're, they're there's no relationship the and sometimes they're like opposite and each one of these studies sucks and then yeah. you put them all together and it seems like there's a mat and you slightly misrepresent each one or each one is just sort of fidgeting with something and sometimes yeah, yeah. They, they just contradict you, but it doesn't matter because you just you just have all those citations and and nobody ever nobody ever checks. Nobody ever them. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So none. I'll go ahead and give a preview. None of the studies she cites to show that like this is an outcome for that's associated with wealth. This is an outcome associated with poverty. None of them is well powered, meaning none of them is big enough. None of them has good enough measures. They're all 
very poorly done from the perspective of generalizing the, the like exact results. Like if I found a correlation of 0.5 in a study of, you know, 25 people, that's nowhere near as meaningful as if I found a 0.5 correlation in a study of a million people. It's very different. In the study of 25 people, it's going to be exaggerated considerably because it's too small to get a significant effect otherwise. And the significant effect is going to be the one you can publish unless you're in a special situation to publish. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have enough people, right? Yeah. If you have the whole population of the United States and you find a correlation of, yeah, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, that's, that's something real. You're right. And then, yeah. you, and, the, and the question, and, but, you know, but if it's like 100 people, you know, whatever, that's not, that's not big of a deal. And if it's, you know, 20 people, yeah. and these, these, um, these studies, these, I guess it's expensive, right? To, you know, it's not like boring people. To oh, it's, people. it's terrible too. <laughs> have, have you ever, uh, like, had an EEG on you? No. It te- it's this, if you're a kid and you're getting an EEG on, there's a lot of fidgeting. Kids, uh, their results are often invalid because they just play around. They're not interested in the tasks at hand. They fidget in their seats and they don't like doing it. It's annoying. The process is just terrible for young kids, especially. And it's not a terribly uh, reliable method in the first place. Like all, um, all like neuro, like imaging methods neuroimaging methods are open to analogy, like an analogy with the reliability of like a psychometric test. Like, you know what that is? If you have uh, a reliable personality test, then the results over time will be correlated very well. So if you have a highly reliable measure of openness to experience, then you might have a correlation if a person takes it twice of like 0.95 or something like that. But the correlation. I don't for, think they're that uh, high, are they? They're not zero point nine five on openness. No, reliability is rarely that high for personality measures. It's that it's usually that high for like a composite IQ measure, but those are very different. The difference heard, between the personality and IQ is, is it really point? Is it not? Is it as high as point nine five? The the composite reliable. That's the reliability of all the little tests on the IQ test added together. You know, okay, not directly added together, but added together in a very specific way. Weighted, right? They're basically okay. weighted by how correlated they are. Um, Generally, the reliabilities are 0.9 plus, and they're, they can get that high in part because there are usually a lot of items, a lot of, a lot of testing, but they differ from personality tests and like tests of temperament or observer observations because they're objective. Uh, IQ tests, there's a wrong or a right answer. And because of that, it's so much easier to get reliability. Um, if it's not wishy-washy, like you don't feel a little more open today than you did yesterday, you don't feel a little smarter today than yesterday. Uh, you can't really change the result. As yeah, it's not about how you feel while openness yeah. or, you're, or you're measuring these things. So yeah, so these or things like don't have high in the room. <laughs> yeah. So you're, so yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's situational. You, so you're saying that these uh, these braidwave stuff. Would you? It, it, the, the, what, what are, what's the reliable? Like what's the reliability there? What's the correlation between it? I'm not sure. Um, so the reason I'm not sure is because there are not and there's not good validity. There's not. Studies. They don't even know. They're not good reliability studies. Like I found reliability studies that I don't want to generalize from because they're very specific subsamples. Like uh, power reliability at baseline for a sample of, I think it was like 24 autistic people. Um, it was like 0.3, but then another parameter was 0.8. It, it's all over the place. And uh, the parameter I was looking at specifically was power, which is what was relevant for Kimberly Noble, uh, Troller Renfrey et al. study. That was quite low. Um, I don't know if that's actually generalizable, but I know that other neuroimaging, like neuroimaging methods, not EEG, um, they have very bad reliability. It's, yeah, it's amazing. It's like, so like these brain wave studies are not even like the rich brain report rate. Like they're not even the same on the same, uh, on different days of like the same people on different days. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, that's, that's incredible. So you could take basically, what does this show? I think about science. I think this shows that basically you could take anything. You could take like rolling the dice and it's like samples of like 20 and you could build like an academic <laughs> literature on it. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's really, are you familiar really- with Feynman's notion of cargo cults? Uh, yes, of course. So are you familiar with the, uh, the Millikan oil drop example he had there or that he used? Uh, the oil drop example. I don't know. I'm not sure about the oil drop example. Go ahead. So the idea was we want to find the mass of an electron and there's this little experiment we can do. And it, the first time it was done by Millikan, it was systematically like, it was very wrong. It wasn't correct. We didn't get it the correct weight. So other people came along and they tried to replicate the experiment and they got different values. And they didn't publish their values if they were very different, which they should have been. You know, it's not, it's like a small amount of absolute difference, but relatively quite different. So 
people would come along and they would also get a wrong value, but it would be closer to the truth. And they would publish that. And then the next person come along and they're also wrong, but they're closer to the truth. They're a little shifted this direction away from Millikan towards reality. And they would just come along and slowly and slowly the academic literature converged on the truth. It just took a very long time to get the right magnitude because people were afraid of publishing uh, a number that was radically different that would have been correct. The radical difference was not acceptable to publish, even though it was the right. No, but that's, that sounds like that, that screwed things up. So people just stuck to what they, that means it didn't work, it did. right? For a very long because time, it, yeah. They converged on something wrong, unless for mm -hmm. some reason they just started publishing <laughs> the, uh, is, is that the lesson? That, that's the lesson, right? They, could they eventually got around to the right thing, but it's They took eventually a, got wrong because people would publish long. the extreme results. Mm -hmm. They would publish less and less wrong results over time, but you couldn't, you had to like cite the person who was a little less wrong to show that, oh, I don't differ very much from them. Oh, uh, I but see. Meanwhile, I see. you differ more and more from Millikan. Uh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, yeah, these are, there are real uh, pathologies here. And oh, I guess, yeah. I mean, part of it is like, I've done studies in like political science. Like it, it, it takes time and effort as a researcher and you have to publish as much as possible. So I, mean, I, I don't, I never dealt with a, you know, a brain, you know, brain scans or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but just like running a survey, you know, might take a few months to do everything, get the money, spend the money, uh, mm -hmm. you know, do the work and then to find nothing. Well, you just flushed, you know, three, six months, you know, whatever down the toilet. And you can't do that and succeed as an academic. I mean, you, you just can't because oh, yeah. there's, because you'll, I mean, you won't, you won't publish things and you won't get a job. Um, and you think, you imagine these people, there's Kim Noble person uh, and people like her. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're getting more or probably much bigger grants than people like, you know, political science or psychology usually are. Uh, and they have these big expensive machines and they're going to work every day. And are you going to do all that and then say, well, nothing. I produced zero <laughs> out of my lab. Like, no, like human nature, like, you know, won't, you know, won't allow that. You know, there's temptation yeah. to fraud or to fudge things or, or whatever. Um, I think yeah, that regardless is... of the results, they would have found that the intervention group, this is a bit pessimistic to say, but I think regardless of the results, they would have found the intervention group had brainwaves concordant with social status in some set of studies. Or yes, they would have said if it was the brain, if it was more power or less power, the money would have, like they would have not found that the money made them you know, dumber. This definitely would have been sprints. the money effect. I can find <laughs> 10 studies to show it is. The, the money would have had a positive effect. That's right. No matter no matter what. They would have twisted and played with the data uh, oh, yeah. until, and until they got there. Two of their, uh, with the brainwave like frequencies they wanted to analyze, they did analyze, but did not pre-register they wanted to analyze. The studies they cited actually did not support links to socioeconomic status. In one of them, no links, it was all nulls. And in the second one, it was in the opposite direction. But this wasn't a headline thing. Yeah. So for for yeah. So for the audience, the pre-registration, uh, so there's sort of a norm of pre-registration because before you could just take you you have ten different tests and uh, you pick you know you pick um, the one that gives you this statistically significant result. And you pretend like that was sort of what you were looking for the whole time. So there's this called pre-registration where you say, I'm going to do, you know, A, B, C, D. I'm going to do exactly this. Then I'm going to report that. And then they did this. They pre-registered because that's what like everyone is supposed to do now. But then they say, uh, but then the you know, stuff that pre-registered didn't work. Uh, they didn't find anything. Uh, so they said, we're going to, you know, we're going to diverge from our pre-registration plan. And because these new studies that came out, um, that, you know, say that we might, we should be looking for this, which yeah, I guess we couldn't have known because those studies weren't out yet. Science had not advanced yet. So we, we, you shouldn't have expected us to include that in pre-registration. Uh, you know, they didn't read the studies first and then go do the, like they could have done that, I guess. Um, and like nobody looked at the studies, but then you looked at those studies and they didn't even say what they were supposed to, you know, yeah. what they were supposed to say. Yeah, was, they, they completely disagreed with their interpretation in the paper. And this was, these two things were the Jensen et al. and Burrito et al. papers, which they used to support looking at these unregistered brainwave frequencies. Those were, that was buried in the supplement. And it was still portrayed as though those papers went, were kindly to them, but they were not. They were exactly the opposite of kindly. One of them was worthless to them. It showed nothing. And the other one, was completely the opposite of what they got. So if anything, the only, the margin, most significant, and they're not significant, this is the closest to significant effects they got were showing that the intervention would have been harmful, which is not what they want to say, <laughs> but it's what they would have to conclude. 
if they're being truly honest and citing the literature, do they side and interpreting it, you know, as it's supposed to be interpreted, I guess. Yeah. This if, is, this is, those a, are the examples a, they could come up with and they didn't go well. Yeah, this is it. This is incredible. And so I guess, you know, so like, yeah, a lot of people saw that there was a problem, you know, there were problems with the study. They saw it quickly, uh, mm-hmm. but you do the deep dive and I think you show that like the studies they rely on, like the justification for even doing what they did made oh, yeah. no sense or the it's assumptions they did, you know, even if like, if the P, if the P uh, values were perfect, you know, if they mm-hmm. were 0.01, close to whatever, good 0.01, that still wouldn't mean much. I mean, that's what you, that's what you showed. Um, and, but, but the p-values were not very good. And so like, you know, they weren't very solid. Uh, so it's just like, that's what people discovered. And like, I guess people know, like to look for p-values now, um, that are, you know, not, not that impressive. Uh, but you know, that's not the end of the, that's not the end of, you know, the the journey. (laughs) They cited a number of studies that were bizarre to generalize from like one was, I think it was 13 kids. I might be wrong in this number, but it was like 13 kids with a cardiac condition. And I don't know why this was studied as like to generalize from because uh, the condition that being talked about is often associated with like a variety of genetic, uh, you could call them defects, harms, deleterious mutations and stuff like this, like things that are harmful to you in other ways that we would expect to probably make it so you shouldn't generalize from this population because they could be different, not only in the way we're looking at or not only in the way they're sampled, but also in ways that are relevant for our study. Like we know that people with uh, like heart defects at birth, like congenital heart defects, they often have like much reduced IQs as well. the The condition is not just like a condition that only affects their heart; it also affects their brains and it affects their musculature. It affects so much else in a lot of people. It's not everybody has all these effects, but the many people do. It's enough that it's a concerning thing. And the fact that they would generalize from this study of you know, 13 people or another study of like 24 people or 21 people or 19 people or 63 people. It's like it's a bit appalling because the effect sizes they're looking for, um, the effect sizes they're saying are realistic tacitly or, or even explicitly are multiple times what is likely. The largest studies do get smaller effects. Um, I've looked at a lot of like uh, brain cartilates of intelligence before, like nerve conduction velocity. That was one that uh, Arthur Jensen studied. And Arthur Jensen loved this one because he thought, cool, there are some papers suggesting this might be the basis for general intelligence, neural speed, how quickly like a signal gets from here to there in the back of the head. And those studies were all based on small samples too. And the effect sizes were gigantic. They were like 0.5, 0.4, 0.6, 0.7, 0.9. And the samples were tiny. They were exaggerated. Um, another scientist, Emil Kierkegaard, wanted to replicate this. He's a big fan of Arthur Jensen. So he found a sample of 4,462 to look at this. And it was bigger than the entire published literature on the subject. So he got a, one sample bigger than everything with better measures of nerve conduction velocity, better measures of intelligence, and found that the real correlation was about 0.1. <laughs> where did he find this? Stuff? Where, where did they do this? 4,000 people. I mean, what kind of study was, it was that? Uh, an archival sample from the CDC known as the Vietnam Experience Study. It was a study uh-huh. of Vietnam veterans who, and some non-veterans, people who were asked prior to uh, high school graduation, you want to join the study? You'll, you'll take some IQ tests. You'll take hundreds of little measures of your mental health. We'll do the nerve conduction stuff. They even had, like, this is kind of strange, but they had, like, semen parameters. They have... Um, every sort of outcome. It's a massive data set because it was also intended to help inform about the infe- the effects of biological agents like Agent Orange on soldiers. So it was a very multifaceted data set, but it just incidentally did allow us to see, hey, this correlation is very tiny in the biggest yeah. studies. Yeah, but the right we we and again, I mean, the reliability of uh, uh, the speed of going here to here. Like we haven't, do we have any idea? Um, I think it's quite good. Uh, and the thing is that when Emil did it, he did it better than other people. Cause they usually use like ulnar nerve velocity or like one nerve velocity, one measure. And he used, I think like five or six measures. He did it much, much better to use many. So the reliability is considerably, uh, 
it's, it differs quite a bit when you use a measure that is a composite of many. It's a lot better than if you just use one or the other measure. And I haven't looked, but I think you could probably pull out some much larger effects looking at specific ones of these. But when you aggregate them, you get an aggregate like nerve conduction velocity. You get much, much smaller effects with a much more reliable measure. Yeah. Although you, I mean, if you, if you, if you're better, if one of them is a better predictor, maybe you just, just care about that. I mean, the composite is not necessarily be. The, the best way to go. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, all of these velocities had been related to intelligence previously, which is why they were, it's kind of theoretically acceptable to do that. I see. I see. So yeah, so this is, um, so th- I mean, that's what this study and, you know, there's also something, you know, what else you do is you look at a lot of other literatures and I guess the point is there, there should be these things called priors. Um, which is like, how plausible is this thing? Now, how plausible is it? You give $300 a month, uh, to a kid and they become, you know, I guess what they really want is smarter. I mean, they can't say that, but you know, what they hope to get is smarter or like, you know, change makes them less, you know, criminally inclined or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, more, you know, more self-control or more conscientious when they, when they grow up. And so, I mean, you start by saying how plausible, I mean, if you look at like the, uh, you know, if you look at like going from the f- f- a third world to the first world, right? Like, you know, your yeah. GDP per capita will go from, you know, uh, whatever, a thousand bucks or something. Oh, to yeah. 50, like international bucks. adoptions. These are great. Yeah. And so like, okay, that's like, that should give you some kind of like theoretical maximum, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. adding $300 a, a month. Um, you know, you're adding $3,000 a uh, you, you know, 3,000 or something. It's, three, it's about 20% higher income for these ladies in the study. Yeah, so it's something. It's not. It's not nothing. Yeah, um, it's pretty. It, it's considerable. It's considerable. Yeah, it, it's considerable. Um, but you know, we have like data on. Uh, we have first of all, we have data on giving people money before, right? Can you talk um, about that? There are a lot. There are dozens of other um, cash aid studies where they give people cash. They give them cash conditional on working. They give them cash not conditional on working. It's unconditional cash transfers. They give them uh, jobs. They give them um, medical aid for free. They give them free health insurance. They give them uh, food deliveries. They give them educational classes on how to be a better parent. They offer them job training. There are all sorts of things which end up having sometimes larger, sometimes smaller effects. But they all uniformly seem to find that some years after the intervention is concluded, the lasting effects, if there are any, are usually not so meaningful. It's not like the kid became smarter. You might get an effect at like year one when the intervention is still ongoing, but then at year three, it's that effect is gone. Um, and f- the effects that you might find that are lasting are things like how well the parent understands going out and getting health insurance. It's stuff that you could, you could just tell me to make a major impact. It could have a major impact for some health areas specifically, or like how well they manage their finances which is a good thing in its own right to improve. But the thing is, it might fail the cost-benefit test. And it, so I guess the, the, the response would be, oh, why not just, uh, if they fade out, why not just do um, these things forever? What's the answer to that? They just have this uh, state, yeah. which constantly... While there are very few of them, there are some multi-year studies that uh, also find fade-out effects, like as kids age. Oh, they just get um, bored. They just get bored yeah. with like, it's like, you know, it's like ever people like go on a diet or something, or they start like a new self-help program. It's like people stick with it. And then even if they, you know, even if they're like still like, you know, encouraging them to go on the diet. Yeah, that makes sense. They, so they fade out even adjust. if you keep the uh, treatments. Or is it just like kids? Like, you know, what is it? Like, you know, these Head Start things, that's like preschoolers, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, okay, like you could improve a preschooler's ability <laughs> to like, you know, do a few things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't. That's not like correlated with like because you have this correlate. You probably do. I mean, you do have these correlations where like intelligence differences. So like a smart six year old is probably more likely to be a smart you know fifteen year old, yep. um, or twenty year old, or thirty year old. Uh, but you know, it doesn't mean that if you take a uh, you know take a, a six year old and just like you know train them to like do a test better or like you know get, get them to carry out certain tasks that fundamentally changes the person they're going to be when they're ten. Oh 15, yeah, you know twenty. Uh, yeah. It's, no, it's a lot so, of times what you'll get is these improvements on basically meaningless outcomes. It's I've I've made this man wear a bigger shirt. Okay. <laughs> uh, oftentimes you'll see improvements in terms of BMI, and what they mean by improvements is the kid is bigger, but that doesn't necessarily relate to like brain health. Small, don't you? Um, smaller. Do what? 
You want them smaller, not BMI. You want the kids smaller, don't you? Well, in a third world country, it might be very oh, a third good. Third world country, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're in like Nepal or something, a greater BMI is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, but of course. The degree to which it affects something like intelligence is up for debate because, like, the body is head sparing. Um, you're going to start like your body's going to start consuming your brain mass after it starts wasting your muscles. Yeah. Uh, so these kids, it's debatable the degree to which they're cognitively handicapped unless they're missing something essential like DHA or EPA or iodine or something like that. Mm. So you say, you say the brain, the, 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 so the, if you're malnourished, you're saying the brain is a lot, but how, uh, but isn't the, um, what about the Flynn effect? So my understanding is there's basically a correlation, um, you know, the, the uh, we're getting taller, uh, that stopped, but basically we were getting taller. Um, we were getting, uh, you know, fatter and way more, um, that's, you know, diminishing returns, obviously. Uh, but we're getting smarter too until, until, uh, until recently. Um, yep. and it, you know, the, you know, a simple, you know, I, I always thought of a simple theory of personal theory of all this is just, you know, we're eating more and that's, we're better nourished that that would make you, uh, you know, better on all these measures. Is, do you think that's not, uh, no, not I don't what's think going that's on? the case. So, um, the Flynn effect first of all, is not us getting smarter. Um, it's very commonly misinterpreted as us getting smarter. And the reason is because it's you're getting better at an IQ test. Of course, you should get smarter if you get better at the IQ test. But it's analogous to if I, allow, if I give you answers to the IQ test. That's what the gains are like. They're not gains in the sense of the kid has become smarter in terms of like a construct we're interested in, like G in general intelligence. They haven't become smarter in that sense. They've become better at specific things. So they might do better at a reaction time task, but not another reaction time task. They might be better at a spatial task, but not a verbal task. They might be better at an arithmetic task. But so what, a, what are some things that people are getting better at and things that people haven't gotten better at? So they're getting better at tasks that are, you could say, less G-loaded. So they're getting better at, um, for example, they are actually getting faster. They, well, they stopped recently, but um, for a while, kids were getting faster. So if you look at like the Woodcock-Johnson, this is a great test. It's a very broad test. It's a great norming sample. I know some of the guys I've met, Woodcock. Uh, it's a great little test, big test. It, like the Waze, like the Wexler. It's a very well-known test, and it includes all sorts of things from spatial to verbal to mathematical to I think there's a reaction time component to it, but there's a speed measure that is on there that if you look at the preschooler sample is improved between cohorts. What does speed so mean again? Just what does what speed mean? Uh, how quickly they do things. Okay. Like so like physically speed or is a robust cartilage of general intelligence. Um, How quickly they do things physically or mentally? So uh, mentally. So it's, um, for example, there's a thing, there are little tasks they have where they like the, uh, say a light comes on, you have to press a button right as the light comes on. What they'll do is they'll remove the movement time of the arm. They'll just take the time it took you to start responding uh -huh. and hit it. Gotcha. So people are getting time. better at that. They are. Or they have. Or they were. Now they're not, but now they were. And what's the explanation? In some places, that they besides, might still be. Why, why would that be just you know unimportant? Or what's the reason for that? I don't. I don't think that's unimportant. I think there are important aspects to the Flynn effect. It's yeah, just not. Why, a general, why would that not, yeah. Why would that not correlate with? So I guess that's not intelligent. So obviously that's not no. necessary. So that's what, what something are related to intelligence? Something intelligence seems to causally influence. Uh, the construct intelligence. Um, Maybe we're just eating more. We have more energy. We can just get off the but move our hand faster. Maybe our brains are constructed somewhat better. There is some evidence from like Michael Woodley of many that the Flynn effect has led to uh, slightly larger brains. We do have slightly larger brains as the Flynn effect has gone on. And that phenomenon has gone on despite um, losses in terms of general intelligence. In aggregate over the generations, we become a little less intelligent, but we've gone up on certain other tests. Like we've gone up on specific measures. So what are we, uh, where are, are, are there G-loaded things we're getting worse at? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, there are? In really? general, yeah, we're getting, I thought, yeah, I thought we're, we, were, we were either, we were either treading water or getting uh, better, but no, you're saying, you're saying there are some things that are G-loaded that we're getting worse on. So we're, we're dumb. Mm -hmm. So what are those? We do considerably worse on some tests per our scores and other things. Um, I'd have to look at these examples again, but there are rather large analyses that like, uh, I'm, I don't want to mispronounce the name, but it's uh, like Wangooparaj, Wangooparaj. Paraj, it's it's an Indian name of some origin. I don't know Wangu Paraj, I think at all. They looked at a variety of tests and they found that the G loaded ones are going down, while the non G loaded ones are going up. Um, the effects are not massive. Uh, the co occur it, this is part of uh, Michael Woodley of many's co occurrence theory that Wangu Paraj at all provided some evidence for. 
they did find that there are some gains in some areas, but there are losses in other areas. And the losses tend to be concentrated on the G-loaded things, the things that are more related to general intelligence, the things that are better tests of general intelligence, whereas on the things that are less related, we're doing a little better. Um, we're doing better than we would expect. Yeah, we'll find we'll find these papers. We'll we'll put links. Yeah. Uh, we'll put we'll, we'll include the links. Uh, well, but what kinds of things? I mean, what kind, if you don't remember specifics here, what kind of things tend to be tend to be G loaded? Oh, tend tend to be G loaded is actually it's interesting. Um, some people say it's more culturally bound things like uh, verbal ability, vocabulary is one of your most highly G loaded tests. Um, if you have tests of general knowledge or information, those are highly G loaded. Those are also likely to get like culturally biased uh, in the sense of like we'll find that those tests don't predict or they mispredict people's uh, like underlying levels of intelligence across different groups just because of the content need that is required um like if you don't if you know ask, like somalians about like american you know yeah. uh, government they're not gonna exactly. it's not gonna be g yeah it's not it's not right. gonna be a measure of anything uh yeah uh, the, the gist of bias is that it's biased if for some level of the underlying ability the score differs um, if you have the same level of underlying ability, you should have the same likelihood, regardless of your group, of getting the same score on the test. If you get a different score at the same level of ability as measured by the other tests, then the test is biased. Got it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so this is all, I mean, this is all interesting. Yeah, we, we, uh, there was a lot of a digression on intelligence, but uh, the Flynn effect and whether we're getting smarter or dumber, I mean, this is so fundamentally, you know, I'm glad we, I'm glad we talked about it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I mean, the, but the most extreme thing, I mean, you talk about, it, and I think this is just like, you know, is, I, I love the cross adoption studies. Uh, I love, I love the oh, yeah. studies. Um, so can you talk about uh, the ones you cite in the uh, paper and sort of their relevance for, for this discussion here? I'll talk about the ones I cited and one whose results I got today. Oh, really? There's a, okay. Yeah. yeah, go, go for it. I just got the results from a friend today. It's really nice. Um, so the ones I talked about in the paper are from, uh, they're interesting. Everybody knows about adoption studies. You get adopted from some family into another family. And generally families that adopt have really high socioeconomic status. They're highly educated. They have a lot of money. They are well-to-do, they're not criminal, they have low rates of mental illness, they're just good families, they're great families to live in. Um, people who get adopted, they end up much better off in a lot of different ways, like the comfort in their lives is so much better, the likelihood of being exposed to drug abuse in youth is so much lower, they just end up living much, much better lives. Their parents are, I, 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 I hate saying that, but their parents are a lot better in a lot of ways if they're adopted. And... In cases where like kids have to go through a lot of trauma as a child uh, and they get sent to like a foster care thing, it's usually better if they get still adopted off somewhere. So a lot of times people will say like an adoption study is no good because people can pick the kids they want from the orphanage or the adoption agency or whatever it is. And this leads to a confounding where they pick the good kids or they pick the bad kid, especially for some reason or something like that. They can uh, see the kid. So adoption study effects, um, when evaluating, you have to kind of be careful of like the age at which the child was adopted, the circumstances the kid lived through prior to adoption. Like, were they deprived of nutritional, nutritionally good food? Were they deprived of iodine? Were they deprived of things that they need to grow and be healthy and all that? Were they exposed to drugs in the womb? All that sort of thing. So the study I cited, and this is the principal one I cited because it's very interesting. It's a study of Korean adoptees in Sweden. And it also includes a comparison group of non-Korean adoptees. The reason Korean adoptees are so interesting is because Korean adoption agencies did not, this is the Holt agency, I believe, that did this. I'm not sure. Though. Uh, they had this rule, Korean adoptions did not let you pick the kid you want. You can't pick the kid. Uh, you get what kid you get. If you sign up to get an adoption, you're getting a kid. You can't choose the anything. What if you, what you, if you don't choose. like them and you want to give them, what, what if you say, you know, what if you want to back out when you see the yeah. kid? If you want to back out before you see the kid, that's okay. If you want well, to back out after you see the kid, you're not going to be able to adopt from Korea again. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's okay. So okay. <laughs> no more All Korean right. adoption for you. Yeah. Okay. You're cut off. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So this gets these Korean adoptees are especially informative about the effects of adoption because they aren't confounded with all this stuff. Like the pre-adoption circumstances are not related to the likelihood they get adopted. So these are really good for causal inference with respect to adoption studies. And the samples are big. 
That's another great thing. There are so many Korean adoptees in Sweden. I don't know why. Uh, for a while, it, there was like a big trend of Swedes adopting Koreans, and I don't know what the reason was. I've read a paper on it that said like you know there was a big push for it from Korea to Sweden, but I don't know to what degree that affected that result. But um, there are just a lot of a lot of them, and it's great. Was it because they're, what was it? What were they? Would they have a lot of orphans or Korea? Was it the? Uh, oh yes, the after the Korean, Korean War, War, there were a huge number of orphans, and. To some extent, Korea's adoption policies were racially motivated. I can send you a paper on that. Um, they didn't want any of the children of American, like white or black GIs, uh, after the war left in Korea. So they wanted them adopted abroad. Uh, so these were often often uh, racially mixed, uh, non, non, non-ethnic yeah. Koreans. I think half. the majority of them are still Koreans, like ethnically Koreans. But Korea did have that explicit policy at one point to get rid of people who are not ethnically Korean. Okay, yeah, I want to read that. We'll, we'll, we'll put that paper in the uh, we'll put that paper in the links too. I'll okay, that. yeah, and okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. Um, it's it's not talked about either. It's really weird. But this policy where you can't pick your kid is so useful to us because it lets us get past all of the criticisms of adoption studies that are typical. Um, you know, like the you pick the kid and that's why this is correlated with that and blah blah blah. So. And you could say like the the richer parents have the better ability to pick the kids, anything. So what I found, what I showed was that the relationship between socioeconomic status and cognitive ability, general intelligence, and the general population is such that poorer people, not as smart, middle-class people, a little smarter, and then rich people, very smart. In adoptions, that relationship is gone. That relationship does not exist among adoptions of Korean adoptees. And it only marginally exists, if any, if it does exist at all, among non-Korean adoptees. If you splice it up like that, so Koreans who are adopted are uh, are adopted into richer homes in Sweden are not smarter uh, than those adopted right. into regular homes. Poor and so homes. this, this, I mean, so people, will, so socioeconomic causes intelligence uh, would not predict that. The socioeconomic predicts intelligence would say Kim, Kimberly Noble would say their brains improved because they went yeah. to better homes. And science and logic and you know the reality of it say that now smarter people have smarter children because of right. their biology. And that's, that's the that's primary the part of it. That's the primary yeah. part of it. There could be there's other little things too, but that, that's mostly what's going. This on. is consistent with small effects of adoption. Um, it's harder to evidence those again because they're small and because they are in the Korean adoptee case they're not confounded with anything, but you also don't find the adoption effects. Uh, in the non-Korean adoptee case, and there are more non-Korean adoptees, like in general, not just in Sweden, but everywhere. Um, and these are people are not, tend to be what, kids from like Africa or are there ones from Europe? I think Latin America is a large source of them. There were a lot from Eastern Europe back in the day. I think the sources kind of differ a lot over time, but I think the most major source presently, I don't know if this is actually true, is China. For I think us. they're still number one. I'm for sure. Sweden? Oh, no, I didn't, not for Sweden. I don't know about Sweden. I was talking globally. Well, China is still uh, sending a lot of kids to die with the one-child policy and, and all sure. that. Uh, recently, they've gotten rid of that one-child policy. They've revised it. I don't know what it is now, but it's they've increased the limit somewhat because they have a fertility. Yeah, I know, problem. but uh, the, the TFR has has gone down, if anything, in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah. it doesn't seem like they have a lot of spare children for for adoption. Yeah. So the policy is interesting. It had a negative effect on fertility, like very clearly, but then removing it or revising it to make it so you can have more kids did not have the positive effect on fertility. Yeah. Well, it's, it hasn't been long. I mean, I think we have to yeah give these things a little uh, while, but still, I mean, I, even, yeah. you know, regardless, I, I wouldn't think they would have uh, a large source. And maybe there's just not a lot of adoptees and maybe it's just because it's just a huge population. Uh, mm. And so it's, um, yeah. And I mean, I, and I think there's some countries where there's like a religious and you know cultural taboo, like India has, has more, many more kids and is almost mm. as big as China. But I, I imagine <laughs> I could imagine yeah. Indians not not giving up their kids for adoption. Uh, that mm. makes sense. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so this, so I mean, and this is like, and so you know, this is not the only way we know about the importance of genes, right? We know mm-hmm. we have cross adoptions. Uh, stu- we have uh, twin studies, right, where we look at uh, identical twins versus uh, fraternal yep. twins. Um, and then, and so, and and so we have, I mean, a lot of different sources, and we have those adopt those other other adoption studies, which are not as perfect as the Korean studies, mm-hmm. but they say the same thing, right? They basically, they the thing, yeah. it's the same thing. So you got this one objection you might have had. Uh, to the cross adoption studies, and then you have a thing, and then you have, a, you have a, yeah. something else, and you you get rid of it. So, 
uh, the point here, I guess, is like genes are very important. Um, even even uh, putting somebody in a new brand new home, which is like the most extreme intervention you could think of, aside from you know going from a third world country to first, oh, world yeah. country, you know within within a normal range, uh, doesn't mm-hmm. have all that big effect. So like a few hundred dollars a month, um, you know, like a you know a class or something uh, for the parent. Like our priors here should be like this is not gonna, this is highly unlikely to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Does I mean does anything I mean does anything work so like for, I I know for taking from third world to first world like okay n- not that but like right. within the same country and like you yeah. know besides like getting rid of you know horrible abuse right um, and mm-hmm. things like that um, like is you know do we have anything that's like unquestionably cost effective uh, not really um, in terms of so iodization is unambiguously cost effective but we've already done it in the West so we've run out the benefit on that uh, we could provide more iodine and salt to a lot of third world countries and they do a little better. Um, that cons- it's considerable enough and it's cheap enough that we should just do it. Um, and there are other interventions that people allege have effects that are like educational interventions. Um, they don't have effects on the things we want. Like we, they don't make people smarter. Um, direct instruction, for example, is a very popular method of, uh, teaching that a lot of advocates of it claim is overlooked and they claim it's overlooked because like, you know, it works but it doesn't acknowledge how kids want to do their education. Doesn't give them all the educational choice, but they also claim it's highly effective. Like the effect sizes are very large. Even so with this like is, this is doing what exactly? Uh, it's a different way of instructing kids where basically the, th- the objectionable thing to a lot of people is that you ignore what kids want and you <laughs> focus on mastery learning and just like drilling it in the same so it's way. Like, it's like what everyone thought before the 1960s. It's just yeah. like telling them like <laughs> you should, you know, just telling kids what they need to know instead of like yeah. saying you're a creative, you know, angel who's going to is going to invent, you know, calculus on your own. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like we've we've become crazy. Like we've become so stupid. And it's like, yeah, obviously like it's not what the kid wants. Like okay, like obviously. Like yeah, that will you know, yeah, that's the kid doesn't yeah, want. If stuff, the kid like, wants to read a billion books on a, a subject that is dubious then it's not going to help them probably yeah exactly yeah so just letting the kids take the lead so yeah the the direct intervention i mean but even that like that seems like it would get better maybe test scores or whatever i mean does that make them like more productive workers or or that's the thing down the line is we don't know yeah Um, so we know for about the korean adoptees um that being adopted into a richer family does not give you higher incomes later in life uh bruno sacerdote did a study on those that those uh the holtz adoption agency which is one of the major adoption agencies for korea and he found that Korean adoptees, I believe in the U.S., did not have higher incomes at different levels of parental uh, socioeconomic status. The incomes, people's incomes were related to biological family members very strongly, but not so much to adoptive family members. So even the validity stuff down the line, not very strongly affected. Yeah. I, you know, I like that... Uh... Uh, you know, I like, you know, so you, I mean, you end up here taking a, um, a, you know, a strong position on social science and uh, public <laughs> policy and how we should think about the relationship between the two. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? So I am a little pessimistic. I believe that a lot of the issue with social science stuff is that to get published, you do have to exaggerate your findings. You do have to add some flourish. You have to make them sound significant. If you're, you have a press release, that's that's a good thing to start. If you got a press release for like a preprint, you're off to a great start. Um, you're already going to have a popular thing, and the more you hype it up, the I think the better your odds of getting published. Even uh, if you've made a deal with your publisher, this is going to be big. It's going to have so many implications. Then you're likely to get published, and you're likely to get hype. You're likely to get in the news like this. And so a lot of people have these incentives. These incentives are like basically stretch the truth as much as you can to make it a sound like a very important study, make it sound like you're changing the world in your little implication section at the end, say we can make kids twice as smart. I mean, just say whatever you want to say, uh, because you need to get published. Um, I think that's the majority of it. There are people who are going out of their way to advocate for policy with social scientific tools. They are doing studies and analyzing them in ways that are very favorable to the conclusions they've already wanted to get. This is the minor part, but it's also massively important because the average person can't discriminate 
those types of studies. They can't discriminate the person clearly exaggerating for effect versus the person exaggerating for purpose, exaggerating to uh, conclude what they want to conclude or to get more funding or to get, you know, status, to get that promotion, to get that tenure, to get that, you know, op-ed in the New York Times, to get whatever you want. Um, but it doesn't matter either way because they're both deleterious in their effects. The person who's doing it very obviously, I, I don't wish, I don't want to impugn anybody, but I, I think Kimberly Noble is in the school of people who have made the same error repeatedly. She again and again does the same thing where if you look at her papers, you see another one come along and you go, oh, you've correlated socioeconomic status and another good outcome. Well, it's, it's, wor- it's working for her. Do better. Why would she change? Yeah. Because of you, it's, who cares about what you think? It, it's working for her. She's got a yeah. she's got a professorship at Columbia, right? Oh yeah, she's got a very prestigious position. A professor of I even put it over here. A professor of neuroscience and education, director of the neurocognition early experience and development lab. And I'm I'm gonna guess that gets some, <laughs> if not hundreds of thousands, millions in funding. I'm, I'm gonna guess it gets well funded, um, and it's popular as can be. She has a lot of citations. She does work that gets retweeted a billion times. It's uh, it's incredible, but it's also not good. It doesn't tell you anything more than that. There's there are these correlations. Uh, we found them again, and people associated with her will look at another study. They'll reanalyze the same thing, but look at a different outcome, and they'll find oh look this this thing happened again. Good went with good, bad went with bad, and this is our case. And we so need a million is, more dollars to study it. So is so. Uh, what you're saying is science is broken. There's no way to do it well, um, uh, given our incentive structure, um, given the yeah. current incentive structure. Uh, is is so in the real world? Is the implications for this? Is this the case for? Uh, is this the case for Trump? Is this the case for just wanting leaders who just don't believe in don't believe in science and experts <laughs> and don't listen to them because like they're going to be wrong if they do listen to them? I actually think the case for Trump is that. He just regurgitates what a lot of really qualified career public servants will say, and he gets laughed at, but he'll do it anyway. Like uh, Trump on fracking. Fracking's great. Trump doesn't know a thing about fracking, I'm going to go ahead and say. I'm gonna, that's my guess. I, he might know all about it. But he trusts different but, guys. I think he trusts yeah. like, okay, so who does he trust? He, you know, this is not just Trump. We're using Trump as a metaphor, but it sort of is about Trump too. Yeah. Um, it, it's, um, it's like he trusts oil men. He trusts people in business. He trusts I'm the guys who got the oil out of the ground. He doesn't trust the people who wear suits, um, who right. got their position because they wrote a paper and other people <laughs> cited that paper. And then they got like an op-ed in the New York Times. That to him is not impressive. You made yeah. a lot of money. He's impressed with construction. With building, oh, yeah. <laughs> with something real, and he just like, and you know, the it's like you think you have somebody who sounds smart, like Obama, like he's not researching, he's not re- reading scientific studies, and and uh, he is writing them. <laughs> he's writing his op eds for science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so he's yeah. so he's he's not doing this stuff. Um, so he he is doing the same thing as Trump. He's just listening to other people who are saying stuff, right? And, and I think he's often listening to quite bad people like, yeah and so it doesn't like you know just using obama as a stand-in for someone who you know sounds the part and looks smart and, and all that um but he doesn't you know but he's just you know but he's doing the same thing as trump fundamentally he's just listening uh he's just listening to uh people who he wants to listen to for whatever reasons um and all that matters is if the people that the politician is listening to or the leader or whatever um mm-hmm. whether you like the person that you like the people that person <laughs> a is listening to or versus person b not how smart pol- the first politician or the second politician is just like what are their priors what are their defaults who do they trust who do they distrust is this a better way to like think about politics and public policy than the way like oh i want a leader who's smart and thinks about things definitely could be i mean i like it's great to love an andrew yang but uh also i don't think he has good advisors (laughs) (laughs) so so this was a this has been a veiled sort of a critique of sort of a i I, you know does andrew yang i I wouldn't be fair to andrew yang does he even think does he i mean does he like um say that uh ubi is going to make people smarter or is it just a way to like some people say okay UBI is good because it reduces. The Stuart Ritchie said this: like it can be good because it reduces poverty, gives people money, yeah, makes like, people live more comfortable it. lives. Yeah, I think a, an example that might be better for Andrew Yang is like when he talks about like liquid fluoride thorium reactors, and he just says some stuff that doesn't like reflects that he's heard of the term, but then he doesn't know anything about them. Like I think he, there are a lot of politicians who will uh, 
who are like the smart guy politicians like Massey who know a word and they're, they'll repeat that word and they'll repeat some of related ter- like usually the benefits of word, uh, but they don't know anything about it. They're just saying something cool. Yeah. I guess it's uh, smart. Yeah, smart. Yeah. But I mean, politicians don't have the time to, you know, they're, they're yeah. poli- it's a full-time job. Would you, I mean, we're researchers. We don't we're thinkers. Yeah. This is our full-time job. If we were politicians, mm-hmm. we would have less time uh, ourselves oh, yeah. to look at this stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah. This, I mean, this yeah. has been, this has been fascinating. I mean, so I, I, you know, I, I love it because, you know, it's so easy. It's so easy to just take a study and say, okay, you didn't pre-register and all oh, your P values are off and, oh, you didn't think of reverse causation. Like, you know, nerds sit yeah. around and they do that, but it's like, no, you're doing something more profound. You know, you're, uh, you know, just uh, complimenting you. You're doing something much more important in yeah. that, like, you're saying something, and I think it has broad implications for science, for the nature of science, the nature of knowledge, uh, the nature of public policy, and and how mm-hmm. these things interrelate. So, you know, thank you for doing it. It was it was a it was a great it was like a great it. read. Uh, just a, sort of a great sort of a window into you know how I suspect it all works. <laughs> yeah, a system of bad incentives combined with sort of bad methods, bad stats, wishful thinking, and a lot more leads to things we don't really like things yeah. that aren't really are, good so are you working on anything uh last question are you working on anything uh new related to sort of science and its role in public policy or are you getting back to your academic work after this i don't know i'm thinking of uh i don't know if i should say anything um i'm doing a lot of methodological work that will have implications for a variety of papers that are often i think used abusively um uh, so what I'm working on right now, I was actually writing it before we got on call, is a paper entitled Measurement Theories. And the gist of it is that, this is going to have relevance for a lot of policy-relevant papers. The gist of it is that your theory about something makes a prediction about how the measurement works, whether it's going to be biased or not. So if you predict that like sexism is driving um, like the gender equality paradox, this is the paradox whereby uh, it appears personality differences are larger in more gender-equal countries or like gaps in STEM interest are larger in more gender equal countries, less and less gender equal, et cetera, et cetera. That has implications for measurement. And a lot, a lot, a lot of psychological, sociological, et cetera, theories have these big impl- these implications and they're never tested. I've seen them tested a handful of times, but it's, it's a very trivial way to get at uh, testing if your big theory is correct. And I think it'll be fun. Okay, great. We look forward to to getting that. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thank you.